Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to challenge you to follow Christ, and to inspire you to lead a consecrated life. In this episode, we'll cover what the Bible says about angels, demons, and Satan. My goal here is to be as biblical as possible, not giving into wild speculations or dismissing an understanding because it offends my modern sensibilities. The scriptures have a lot to say about the spiritual realm, and we can't possibly work through it all in one episode, but we can at least overview the various major categories of thought. Here now is Theology Part 16, Angels, Demons, and Satan. As you might guess, this lecture has three parts, angels, demons, and Satan. So I'm just going to go in order and give you a very brief overview of these various topics within the Bible. To start with, we have angels, and when it comes to angels, we have five main categories or functions. Uh, the fifth is a little weak, but the other four are much stronger. And they are that angels are worshipers, they are messengers, warriors, helpers, and national vicegerents. The first one, worshipers, comes to us from all of these scriptures in the Bible where someone sees God. They have a vision of God. For example, Isaiah, when he saw God... Isaiah chapter 6 is when that happened. He was in this, this temple. He saw God, but God wasn't alone. There were these other creatures. And it says about them that they were called seraphs, or the Hebrew is seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he f- covered his feet. With two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of His glory. That, to me, is a worshiper. (laughs) And there are other places that angels are mentioned, and they're not mentioned as having six wings, so I don't think we should conclude that all angels have six wings. In Ezekiel, he has a vision in chapter 1 and then again in chapter 10, and he talks about cherubs, and they had, I think, four wings in in that case. Well, let me just look at it while you're writing that down. This is the description from Ezekiel, chapter 1, verse 5. And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures, and this was their appearance. They had a human likeness, but each had four faces, and each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the sole of a calf's foot. And they sparkled like burnished bronze. Under their wings and on their four sides they had human hands, And the four had their faces and their wings in this way. The wings touched one another. Each of them went straight forward without turning as they went. So this is a vision, once again, of these angelic creatures, these spirit beings that are in proximity to the throne of God. Also in the book of Revelation, John receives a vision. And in that case, he calls them living creatures. 
So in one, one place they're called seraphs, in another place they're called cherubs, and then a third, living creatures. Many other places it just says an angel or the angel of the Lord. And these are creatures that first and foremost worship the one true God. Secondly, they're messengers. The angel of the Lord speaks to Hagar, for example, in Genesis 16 and gives Hagar a message about what to do. Uh, you see this all over the place where angels will deliver a message. For example, when Moses encounters the burning bush, the angel is the one who speaks to him. It's not actually God. If you read it carefully, it's the angel who is speaking to him. Or even when Abraham is about to sacrifice Isaac, the angel is the one who delivers the message from God. Stop. Don't do this. Withhold your knife. So angels are messengers. And then third, they're warriors. There are a number of incidents, especially in the Old Testament, where angels straight up do battle. <laughs> and there's the, the most striking incident is when the Assyrians had surrounded Jerusalem in the time of Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, and when Isaiah was his prophet, that they prayed to God to deliver them. And that night, an angel went out and killed 185,000 of the Assyrian army. So that makes the angels dangerous. And also, when the angels appear to people, they usually begin with, fear not. Don't be afraid. So that tells me that there's something to fear there. And angels are warriors. In fact, one of God's names, one of God's titles, is called the Lord of Hosts. And hosts is just another way to say armies. Uh, and so God is the commander-in-chief of the armies of heaven. This would involve angels. Next we have helpers. Angels doing various different tasks that need to be done. For example, that time Daniel was in the lion's den. An angel kept the lions from eating Daniel. He didn't kill the lions. He didn't do battle on the lions, but he helped Daniel. Or there's another time when Elijah was super depressed in 1 Kings chapter 19, and an angel came and made him dinner. <laughs> and said, arise and eat. And then he went to sleep, and then he made him food again. And so that's another example of an angel helping. It says in Hebrews, and also I think that's a quote from one of the Psalms, but uh, that the angels are ministering spirits. A minister is someone who serves. They're spirits that serve God in whatever God needs to be done. And then this last category, national vicegerents, is where the angels have been assigned some sort of authority over a nation or a group. They're not God. They're not the king himself, but they are representatives or deputies who are assigned to a task. And we see that in Daniel in particular. Chapter 10, the angel Gabriel comes to Daniel and says, he basically apologizes for being late. He's like, sorry, I'm late. Ever since like three weeks ago when you started praying, I was sent. But the prince of Persia withheld me. So what's that? And then later on in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Michael, your prince, talking about Michael the, the angel, the archangel, being Israel's prince. And so the understanding we receive here is that different nations have different spirit beings that are looking over them to some degree. Deuteronomy 32 verse 8 says that God set the boundaries or the borders of Israel according to the sons of God. 
And then Psalm 82 is another big one on that. I don't want to get into that too much because we have a lot to cover, but I wanted to mention at least to you that there is some sort of authority structure that God has given the angels to watch over. There are some indications that they have not behaved well with respect to that. Uh, okay, when it comes to demons, which is our second main point here, we have four categories to think of for them. One is they're fallen spirits from Noah's time. The next is that they're associated with idols. Thirdly, they're personal agents. And fourthly, they occupy people but can be exercised or expelled. So let me take that first one first and let's take a look at some scriptures on that. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Huh? <laughs> so after the death of Christ, he proclaimed, and, and his resurrection, he was made alive as well, he proclaimed to the spirits in prison. So at the time of Jesus, there were some sort of spirits in prison. And it says, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So these spirits that Jesus proclaimed to were there during the time of Noah. Whatever they did during the time of Noah, it was disobedient. Consequently, they were imprisoned, and Jesus visited them in this prison. Does that strike you as strange? I mean, to me, it sounds totally bizarre. Jesus visited spirits in prison in his own time, which would have been thousands of years after the flood of Moses. The second reference there is 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. And it says there, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And then it goes on from there. The point here in Second Peter is that it, it flat out says in Second Peter 2 verse 4 that the angels sinned. So angels are capable of sinning, and we know that when they did sin, they were cast into hell. Now, this word hell in 2 Peter 2.4 is not any of the words that I covered with you in the lecture on hell. Remember what those words were? Those three words? Hades. Hades. Um, Sheol. Sheol, yep. Yeah. And? It started with a G. Gehenna. Uh -huh. So this is none of those words. This is a different word, and it's only used this one time in 2 Peter chapter 2, and it's the word Tartarus. And that's where we get tartar sauce from. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> Tartarus. <laughs> oh, boy. Tartarus is, uh, well, let me read. So this is from the New Bible Dictionary, page 464. In the article on hell, it says, In 2 Peter 2.4 only, we find the verb tartaroo, translated in the RSV, cast into hell rendered by the Peshitta, cast down to the lower regions. Tartaros is the classical word for the place of eternal punishment, but it is here applied to the intermediate sphere of punishment for fallen angels. Tartarus is actually not like a biblical word. It's not some word that 
Hebrew people are familiar with or Christian people use. It's a word drawn from Greek mythology. And it refers to a prison that the Titans were locked in, these ancient Greek demigods that had a battle and they lost, so they were locked away in Tartarus. In other words, it's, it's not the sort of thing that the Bible talks about a lot, but there is some sort of place where these angels that did something bad, in particular at the time of Noah, are stored or kept until the last day of judgment. And they use the word Tartarus because that word was already around and people already knew what it meant, and so they just use that word. Uh, or Peter used this word here. When it comes to this subject, I'll be honest with you, I'm not entirely the most comfortable with it. But as I said in the first lecture, we want to draw our, our beliefs from the Bible itself. This is basic Bible doctrine. So we want to draw the doctrines we believe out from the Bible, even if they seem weird to us or conflict with our, our sensibilities. One more place to look at this subject is Jude, which is the book right before Revelation, Jude, verse 6 and seven, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So these angels misbehaved and they are now in this temporary prison. So this is not referring to demons that are like affecting the world today because these angels are fallen and they're not affecting the world today. They're locked away in some sort of a prison. And it says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulge in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So when you go back to Genesis, you actually see this. Genesis chapter six, go ahead and flip over there. Probably a lot of you think the reason why there was so much wickedness was just because people were evil, but there was also some sort of other spiritual element occurring here in Genesis chapter 6 that, let's put it this way, most of the time we don't talk about because it's just so out there, but it's in the Bible, so let's go there. Genesis chapter 6 talks about how everyone is multiplying. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Sons of God, daughters of man. Okay? Some people think that the sons of God here refers to Seth's descendants and daughters of men refers to Cain's descendants. That's an interesting theory. There's no evidence for it. There's another theory that sons of God refers to righteous people. And then daughters of men refers to wicked women. Because they're not called daughters of God. They're called daughters of men. It's much more likely that sons of God refers to angels. Because every other place in the Old Testament, not the New Testament, but in the Old Testament, the phrase sons of God is used. It refers to angels. Okay, so there's a place in there's a place in Job one and also Job two. It's in Daniel three. Oh, and Job thirty-eight as well. It's not like there's that many places. There's only like four places altogether that refers to the sons of God. But my point is that every other place in the Old Testament that says the phrase Bnei Ha Elohim, sons of God, in Hebrew, 
it refers to angels. In fact, it clearly says in Daniel 3, verse uh, 25, and, and then verse 28. In verse 25, this is where Nebuchadnezzar looks into the fiery furnace. And he says, I see a fourth, a fourth man there. And then later on in verse 28, he says, he's, he's praising God and he says, for sending his angel to deliver. In, the, in one case, it says, a son of God. In the other case, it said, he looks like one of the sons of God. See a fourth man in there, and he looks like one of the sons of God. And then in verse 28, it says, it was an angel. So, to me, it's pretty clear that Genesis 6 is talking about angels partnering or pairing off, reproducing with humans, which obviously sounds totally bizarre, but let's read it. The sons of God saw the daughters of men were attractive. They took as their wives any they chose. Verse 3, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. They were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So, whatever happened here, it was very offensive to God. He locked these fallen angels into chains so that that sort of thing wouldn't happen. All right, the next point there on demons. So the, the, the first category there, these spirit beings, whatever you want to call them, angels or demons, they're no longer able to affect anybody in the world because they are now in prison. But then these other ones are very much an annoyance, right? So in Deuteronomy 32, it talks about how there are these idols. It says, they made him jealous with strange gods. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known. Now, what they really did was they sacrificed to idols, but the scripture's calling them demons or gods. Then you have these other verses, for example, in Psalm 106, it says that the Israelites mix with nations and serve their idols and sacrifice their kids to demons. It wasn't a demon. It was an idol. It was a statue. It was called Moloch. It had this whole backstory about what he's supposed to be doing. But yet the Bible describing it calls it a demon. And that's because an idol could be associated with a demon. In other words, obviously the statue is not a god. It's just a representation. But if there is a spiritual power behind it, then that would be a demon, for example. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, let's go ahead and read that one. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 19. This one is talking about the Lord's Supper and whether or not you can eat food in a pagan temple area while a sacrifice is going on. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 19 says, What do I imply then, that a food, that food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons, not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So what, he's, what Paul is saying here is that, I know there's no such thing as an idol. I know these gods don't really exist, but they, the, there are demons, and these demons are behind these idols, and when they're sacrificing, it's, it's somehow related to or contributing to these demons. And look, if you're gonna be a Christian, 
don't have anything to do with that, is what he's saying. Because the sacrifices were like basically our modern equivalent of parades, where you'd have the whole city get together and there was a big excitement and they'd march statues through the streets and then they'd have a big barbecue and everyone would get free red meat. Which in a society where everyone's poor surviving on grain, red meat is pretty sweet. So, but he's saying to the Christians, no, don't go to that. Don't go to the festival. Don't go to the sacrifice because those are sacrificing to demons. All right, then you have personal agents. This is, what I mean by that, number three category for demons, personal agents. What I mean by that is they are not things or dispositions of your mind, but they are personal in the sense that they, they're able to believe things. Only a person can believe something. So, for example, in James... 2 verse 19 we read about this encounter or we read about it's almost like a sarcastic statement that James makes I, I really like this statement actually this is uh, James 2:19. it says you believe that God is one you do well oh that's great you believe God's one congratulations then he says even the demons believe and shudder Right? So, you know, James is like, oh, wow, you figured out God's one. The demons already know that. And then he, he goes on to talk about, you know, how you need to have not just faith, but works as well, and how important that is. But it's interesting, he says, the demons believe that God is one. Look, you can't believe if you're not an individual of some kind. Or Acts chapter 19 is another example. I mean, there are many examples of this because Jesus actually has conversations with demons in different places, but in Acts 19, this is one where the Apostle Paul is talking to one of these, and verse 15, we read, But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? You remember this incident? This is the seven sons of Sceva that went in and they were casting out spirits. They're like, I, I cast you out by Jesus whom Paul preaches. And the, and the demon answers directly. It's like, well, I've heard of Jesus. I heard of Paul. Who are you? And then this guy jumps on him and beats them all up. And they all leave naked and wounded. So one person beating up seven others and stripping all their clothes off. I mean, obviously there's something spiritual going on here. Unless this was like the ancient uh, ninja society that uh, we have never heard of before. All right, so then the fourth is that demons can occupy people and can be exercised. Exercise is not what you do when you do aerobics or go for a run or something. Exercise is casting out. It's casting out, spelled differently. So I'm not going to read all these verses to you, but in Luke 4, in Mark 5, in Acts 16, in Luke 11, all these different places, we see there are these different spirits and Jesus encounters them and Jesus casts them out. It's interesting because the two, the two main phrases we have are demon and unclean spirit. When it comes to demon, the majority of the uses are in the Gospels. Matthew, well Luke is number one, then Matthew, then Mark, and then John. The majority there. But then there are other places in the Bible where the phrase or the word demon occurs. 1 Corinthians, Revelation, James, 1 Timothy, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Psalms. But then when you look up the word unclean spirit, if you look up the phrase unclean spirit, we find that it's in Mark, Luke, Matthew, 
Acts and Revelation. So you have both of these phrases used, one demon and the other unclean spirit, to refer to this being. I've got a quote for you from the New Bible Dictionary. It is often said in modern times that demon possession was simply the way people had in the first century of referring to conditions that we today would call sickness or madness. The gospel accounts, however, distinguish between sickness and possession by demons. For example, in Matthew 4.24 we read of the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, and paralytics. None of these classes appears to be identical with the others. So one of the theories that people have had is that when the Bible talks about demons and spirits, that it's just a pre-modern mindset, a pre-modern way of talking about what we would call psychological problems, chemical imbalances, or trauma that people have suffered that caused them to act weird. Okay, And what this dictionary is telling us is that that doesn't explain it adequately because the Bible actually differentiates between epileptics and those occupied by demons. But there's also some interconnectedness where there is this woman who was bent over. Have you ever read that? You've read that, Naomi? 18 years, was it? Yeah, so she was like bent over for 18 years, okay? And Jesus comes in the synagogue, he sees her, he heals her, and he gets criticized. They're like, why are you doing this on the Sabbath? He's like, because that's my favorite day. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> definitely seems like it was his favorite day to heal people. He says, don't you guys loose your animals on the Sabbath so they can go out and eat grass? How much more should I loose this woman whom Satan has bound for 18 years? You know, so she had a physical, she had a physical condition and Jesus says Satan had bound her. You see what I'm saying? So there's not, it's not like, oh, well, do you have a cold or do you have a spiritual problem? For them, they, they have, they combine both together. All right. Another case where this kid is uh, an epileptic and he, uh, he would have seizures and Jesus identifies it as a demon. He casts the demon out, the seizures go away. Right? So there, like I said before, there is an interconnectedness, but it's not, you, I don't want to be reductionistic and say, oh, it's just pre-modern people using these terms to describe what we would today use medical terms for. My church is very active in the, the Congo countries in Africa specifically Kinshasa and Brazzaville, those two cities, they very much believe in curses and demons and this, this kind of thing where there will be a spiritual explanation for a physical problem. In Nigeria too, yeah. And so my father, uh, who is also a pastor, I work with my father in, uh, in New York, he met this one guy who had night blindness, which... I was, he was telling me about this. I was like, Dad, what's, what's night blindness? And he's like, well, at a certain time, this guy just goes blind every night. You know, like 8 o'clock, all of a sudden he can't, he can't see anymore. Right? There's, no, there's no physical explanation for this. right? I mean, it's not like he can't read as well when he's driving at night. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about blindness <laughs> at night. And Dad did some counseling with this guy and prayed with him and then he was healed and he could then see at night and the guy said that it was from curses that his family had put on him for 
doing whatever he did. I don't know if it was becoming a Christian or not doing what they wanted him to do. And he broke those, and that person was able to see at night. I mean, to, to us in America, we don't perceive it like that. We want to say, oh, there was some medical explanation. There's some scientific explanation. But in these countries, and also in many other countries outside of Africa, the, the spiritual and the physical are not held apart like this. They recognize that they, they interact with each other, right? And that's what we see in the Bible, where there's an, it's not like just one or the other. There's, there's an overlap between the two. Then we have Satan. There's one verse in the Bible that so uh, helpfully explains Satan more than any other place because it gives us this equation. I'll just read it to you. It's from Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. And it gives us an equation of all these different terms that Satan is called. It says, The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil, and Satan, the deceiver of the world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Super helpful verse when it comes to Bible doctrine because now we can look at the ancient serpent. We can look at verses that talk about Satan, which is a Hebrew word. We can look at verses that talk about the devil, which is a Greek word. We can look at the general idea of a deceiver of the world. And we can realize that these are all referring to the same individual. As far as Satan goes, I want to start by saying we have two primary functions of Satan or activities of Satan. And this, these are, he is an accuser and he is a tempter. In fact, the Hebrew word Satan, hasatan, means adversary, someone who is against, someone who accuses. In fact, the word Satan doesn't necessarily mean Satan. I mean, you could be a Satan, I could be a Satan. In fact, there was even one time when Jesus called Peter a Satan. Remember that? Peter pulled Jesus aside and he said, this will never happen to you. And he said, get behind me, Satan, right? And so it can be used as just a general word that means an adversary or someone who is against you. And it is used like that in the scripture. But then when they put the word the in front of it, it refers to the individual, okay? So, ha-satan. Ha is the Hebrew word for the. So literally, it translates, the Satan. And this is a term we see in the book of Job. Let me show you that. Job 1.6 says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and the Satan also came among them. In English, we don't, we don't do that. We don't say, the Madison. Right? We don't say the Alyssa. I mean, not normally. Right? Right, the Jenna? <laughs> we, we, just don't, we, just don't talk, we just don't talk like that. But in other languages, they do. They use the word the differently than we do. And in this case, that's what's going on. But in the English translation, they weren't, they're not going to do that because they're not going to say the God, the Satan, the Paul, the Jesus, that sort of thing. So in Job 1.6, it just says, the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord. So this is a being that speaks. It's not just like a metaphorical concept. From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. 
And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? And then, what does Satan do? He accuses Job. He's an accuser. He accuses Job. He says, the only reason why Job serves you is because you bless him, because you prosper him. If you take away his blessings, he will curse you to your face. And so, that's what happens. And then in chapter 2, the whole thing repeats. Job chapter 2. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And then at this time, Satan answers Job and he says, or Satan answers God and he says, you know, take away his health. Skin for skin. If you, if you, if you take away his health, if you allow me to attack him, then he will curse you. And so that's what happens. Job gets boils all over his body. And Job won't, he won't accuse God. He won't, he won't turn on God. And Satan is just totally unmasked as this evil accuser who is full of it. The other one is Zechariah 3. That's an incident where uh, someone has a vision and he sees Satan accusing the high priest, Joshua. As far as tempting, we have Genesis 3 and Matthew 4. In Genesis 3, I'm sure all of you know about it. That was the incident where the serpent approached Eve and said to her, did God actually say you should not eat of any tree in the garden? And then she said to him, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. And then the serpent replied, you will not surely die. For God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What is that? That is a tempter. That is someone tempting you to go against what God says is right. There's a lot, there's a lot, I mean, there's a whole sermon right here, but we can't develop this right now. But I can tell you this, that in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus goes toe-to-toe with that same being. And in the case with Jesus, the temptation is, if you are the Son of God, turn this stone into bread. Remember what Jesus says back? Man shall not live by bread alone. Oh, you're reading it off the screen. That's totally cheating. Uh, if, and then another one is, he took him to the top of the temple, the pinnacle of the temple. He said, if you're the Son of God, why don't you throw yourself off there? The Bible says the angels will bear you up, right? So you don't dash your foot against the stone. And Jesus, Jesus won't take that temptation. He doesn't take the bait. He shuts it down. He says, what does he say? You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Verse 7 there. Then he takes him to a very high mountain, shows him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he says, look, I'll give you all this. I'll give you your messianic destiny if you will just bow down and worship me. And Jesus says, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Each of these temptations started the same. If you are the son of God. He's trying to get Jesus to doubt who he is. Are you, well, at least the first two, are you the Son of God? And then this third one is, seize it. Take, take your power. Take the kingdoms. These are all temptations to do it over against what God says is right. So that's why I said he's the tempter. 
Satan has influence, incredible influence, in fact. We have three places that talk about Satan's influence that are of note here. One is Jesus, in John 14, 30, says that Satan is the ruler of this world. Now, how many of you would say would be comfortable saying that? I mean, we, we like to think God is the ruler of this world. But there is some sense in which God is actually not exercising his will completely, and he's somehow allowed Satan to be the ruler of this world. Paul called him the God of this age in 2 Corinthians 4.4, and John in the book of Revelation calls him the deceiver of the whole world. In fact, there's a verse in Revelation 11.15 when it talks about the last trumpet, the seventh trumpet blew, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And then they go on to say, they're praising God, and they say, We give thanks to you, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. So there's a sense in which God is not currently reigning over our world. I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure that out. Hurricanes, earthquakes, crime, poverty, racism, injustice. I mean, these are normal in our world. If God was truly exercising his kingly authority over our world, I think it would be a better place. Our world, in a sense, if you really think about it, it looks like somebody bad's in charge, <laughs> right? Uh, but yet, at the same time, there's so much beauty that's sort of like left over from the original creation. And we really see both. We see sunsets and murder. We see selfless acts of giving. And then we see child molesters. You know, we have both in our world. The Bible is the only worldview that I know of that adequately explains both. Satan's goals, according to 2 Corinthians 4 and Matthew 13, are to keep people from the gospel and then take out those who already believe. It says in 2 Corinthians 4 that Satan has blinded people's eyes. It actually says the God of this age has blinded people's eyes so that they wouldn't get the gospel. It says... And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And then in Matthew 13, verse 19, we read, When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. Do you see that? That's so dirty. So the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is somebody who does not understand it. You know the parable of the sower and the seed? It's a, one of the most important parables. Jesus talks about four categories, right? So you have the ones that are on the path. You have the ones among the rocks, the ones among the thorns, and then the good soil. Those are the four categories. So the first category is, is the seed that falls on the path. And it, that seed doesn't really grow, right? Because people are stepping on it, it's on the pathway. Jesus, in the interpretation, says what that represents is people that hear, they hear the word of the kingdom, but they don't get it. They're like, I don't understand. Like, what, did, what does that mean? Who is Jesus? Like, it doesn't make sense to me. And Jesus says that, that those birds that come and snatch away the seeds that's not on the path, that refers to the evil one coming and taking what was sown right out of your heart before you can even believe it. 
verse 20, as for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet has no root, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. There doesn't seem to be any spiritual dimension mentioned in that case. Then the next one, as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word out and it proves unfruitful. And then here's the last category. As for what was sown on the good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it and indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, another sixty, and another thirty. So what is the evil one after here stopping people from even believing it in the first place? Even understanding it in the first place. Before I get to that, I, I just want to read to you another quote from the New Bible Dictionary. This is from page 1064. It says, The witness of the New Testament then is clear. Satan is a malignant reality, always hostile to God and to God's people, but he has already been defeated in Christ's life and death and resurrection, and this defeat will become obvious and complete in the end of the age. Okay, so let's look at how the Bible now talks about some of what Satan is up to when it comes to your life, when it comes to sin, when it comes to fighting to do the right thing. And I have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. I have seven examples of scriptures that attribute what you might think of as behavioral to something that is spiritual. All right, so the first one up is temptation. And it says in Matthew 16, 23, But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. We've already talked about how Satan is the tempter. I don't need to get into that too much. But Matthew 16, 23 is an example of that. Failure. Luke 22, 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, this is Jesus speaking, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Satan is trying to get you to fail. Well, at least he was trying to get Simon Peter to fail. And Jesus said, I have prayed for you. On forgiveness, 2 Corinthians 2, 10 through 11. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. This is Paul writing. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. And so what he's saying here is that forgiveness is important. You need to forgive, because if you don't forgive, you can fall prey to Satan. You, you can't be ignorant of his strategies. And unforgiveness is something that can breed in us a lot of bitterness and sinfulness. Also, Jesus says, if you don't forgive others, his Father won't forgive you, which for me is a pretty solid reason to do it. Inattention. 1 Peter 5, 8. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So what does Satan want? He wants the opposite of what is being said here. He wants you to be inattentive. He wants you to be not sober-minded. And I'm not just talking about getting drunk here. I'm talking about having an alertness of mind. 
not being mentally lazy. Adultery, 1 Corinthians 7, 5, do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. This is talking about a married couple. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is all about singleness and marriage. And he's saying to the married couples, look, don't, de don't deprive each other physically. Because if you do, that will open up an opportunity for Satan to tempt you. Tempt you with what? To sleep with somebody that you're not married to, which would be adultery, right? Now, the next one is false teaching. 2 Corinthians 11, 3 to 4 and 13 to 15. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Verse 13, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. This is Paul speaking as strongly as he possibly can to the church at Corinth, not to listen to these false apostles and these false teachers. Because really, in all honesty, they're servants of Satan. They're disguising themselves like they're super apostles. These, I don't know if you've ever read 2 Corinthians, but it's all about these, these people that swooped in and, and they're, they're trying to get the people not to trust in Paul anymore. They're like, well, Paul's kind of weak. You should stick with us. Does Paul even ask you to pay him? What kind of an apostle is this guy? You know, you don't even support him financially? Why don't you support us financially? And they come in and they try to divide people away from trusting in Paul. And he's saying, look, they're servants of Satan and they're deceiving you. And then the last one, Ephesians 4, 26 to 27, says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. The implication being, if you don't deal with your anger, then the devil will use that foothold to get involved in your life. Now, I, I want to be careful to say that every time something bad happens, please don't blame the devil, okay? Because... <laughs> that's just going to be out of control. Maybe it was the devil, maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was a spirit. Maybe it wasn't. All right? If you don't know, then say you don't know. Because we don't want to just like start making stuff up all over the place. The fact is that there are spiritual powers. There are good spiritual powers. We looked at the angels. And there are bad spiritual powers. We looked at the demons. Satan is not omnipresent, though. There's no scripture that says Satan is everywhere at the same time. So Satan is limited to wherever he is, but then he has these, these demons, obviously, as well. The good news is you can resist. <laughs> I don't want to leave you with no hope that there are these super powerful spiritual forces out to get you without realizing that in Christ, the, uh, the spirits and, and Satan himself have already met their defeat. We can come under Christ's protection as... Uh, the head as the authority, the name of Jesus Christ has authority. We see that in the scriptures that the Apostle Paul was being harassed by a, a girl who had a spirit of divination. And he said, come out of her in the name of Jesus Christ. And the spirit came out of her.
So we know that there's authority that Jesus has over the spirits that his followers can also use. James 4, 7 says, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will run away from you. See, now I would think it would say, run away from the devil and you'll survive. But it, it doesn't. It says, submit yourselves to God. Why? Because God and the devil are not equal and opposite. God is the almighty creator, the powerful one. The devil's a punk. I mean, he's not to be trifled with. He does have power, but God is way more powerful. If you submit yourself to God, you can resist the devil and he'll run away. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, Be sober-minded, be watchful. I, I read that to you before about the devil prowling around like a lion. But then verse 9, it says, Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And then Ephesians 6, 11, actually Ephesians 6 as a whole talks about the armament of God. Ephesians 6, 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So you can resist the devil. He is not irresistible. And that's, in fact, what God wants. What God wants from us is to be on his side doing his work. One last verse comes to us from Romans 16, 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent and what is evil. And then check out this verse right here. Romans 16, 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. <laughs> the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And then you have little shout-outs after this, and then uh, the letter ends. Any questions or thoughts on Satan, demons, or angels? I try to be somewhat thorough. Obviously, there's a lot of verses I didn't go to, just because we're not, you know, we, we have a lot of topics to get through. All right. Well, that's it for this episode. If you have anything to contribute to this important subject, please drop a comment at restitutio.org. Just look for Theology Part 16, Angels, Demons, and Satan, and you'll be able to find the episode that way. I'm curious to hear what you believe about this. Also, if you haven't signed up for Converge yet, now is your time to do it. Please, if you're planning on coming, if you would like to come, you're all invited to the summer festival we're having in the Cleveland, Ohio area, August 2nd through the 4th, 2019. Uh, please go over to convergefest.com and register. We've got a number of housing options there. We try to keep the costs as low as possible. We have no idea if we'll ever do this event again. Right now, it's just a one-time event, gathering people together, seeking to encourage you and to lift each other up through a time of praise and Bible teachings and lots of family fun. So please consider coming to that. You can get more information about that at convergefest.com. And stay tuned for the next episode in this theology class where we'll delve into the subject of atonement, looking at what the Bible teaches us about why Jesus had to die. Thanks for tuning in, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.